We are going to begin at the end of chapter 15, and we're going to make our way all the way through chapter 16 to the very end of that chapter today. We're going to have some fun, and I hope you're ready for that. Uh, as you're, you're turning there, I just want to let you know there's something else to be praying about and rejoicing about. Uh, this week, it looks like we're going to be able to see our foundation poured for our new auditorium. And it's always exciting when some really tangible things start to come together in this process. So be praying about that uh, as this is all unfolding. So much is going on. Uh, as that is happening, uh, we have mailed out to everybody uh, our next-gen uh, contribution statements, just so we are all aware of where we are. Uh, and we do this because it's important for us as we get closer and closer to opening this new auditorium of ours, um, our continued faithfulness in giving is going to be even more uh, vital. Uh, some of us have received a tax refund recently, and I hate to remind you that today is April 15th, uh, but uh, we can rejoice anyway, right? And uh, you, you may be in a place, uh, maybe that's the reason, maybe there's another reason where you're able to accelerate uh, your, your next-gen giving, or maybe just to catch up. And we just want to remind everybody, as we are able, that we can uh, stay faithful and we can maintain this pace that we're on uh, so that we can run this race of next gen all the way uh, to the very, very end. Well, Acts, the book of Acts, is about being sent. And historians tell us that the spread of Christianity is actually one of the most phenomenal events in all of human history. Uh, we know that by the uh, year 325 AD, uh, over half of the Roman Empire had become Christians. And as I've mentioned several times before in this series, this all began, it all started with just 12 guys on a hillside. No money, no power, no influence, no status in society. All they had was the absolute conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. All they had was the knowledge that a strange power had been poured into their lives called the gift of the Holy Spirit. So how did this happen? How did this transformation take place? Well, as we have been seeing, the key is that every single person in the church, not just a few leaders, but every person was carrying the message. All through the book of Acts, I've been pointing this out to you, Luke seems to go out of his way to show us that it is ordinary people primarily, not just the ordained apostles. They are the ones who are being sent, going out, spreading the message. Uh, noted church historian Stephen Neal once wrote, there is nothing more notable than the anonymity of the early Christian movement. Now, I say all that to point out that our passage today shows us how God changes lives. And I want you to see as we work our way through these verses that God changes lives mostly through ordinary, anonymous people just like you and just like me. I want to show you five ways that God changes lives this morning. And here's the first one. You can write this down on your message notes. God changes lives even when his followers fail. Now, this may surprise you, but the church advances, not because of who we are, but because it is God's plan, and God is so amazingly sovereign, he can still accomplish his plan even when we fail. Aren't you glad? Well, look at what Luke writes beginning in verse 36 of chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul went to Barnabas, said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. 
They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, as we saw last week, Paul and Barnabas, they they come back from Jerusalem with the Jerusalem Council's decision. They get right back to work in Antioch, sharing the gospel. And then sometime later, we don't know exactly how long, Paul decides that it would be a good idea to return to the churches that he and Barnabas had established on their first missionary journey. And see, as they make their plans, they get ready to do this, something happens that may surprise us at first. These two incredible very godly leaders have a conflict, and they can't resolve it. And it escalates to the point of sharp disagreement, as Luke puts it. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them, but Paul says, no way, because he deserted us on our first journey. Barnabas is the encourager. He's also John Mark's cousin. He wants to give him another chance, but Paul says no, and they can't agree, and they eventually decide to go their separate ways. And I want to say to you this morning, this should be incredibly encouraging to us. You say, why? Well, I'm encouraged because if Paul and Barnabas had conflicts they couldn't get past, there's hope for me, and there's hope for you. See, we idealize the church sometimes. We think that the church is the place where all the angels fly around all the time. Some of you think that I have the easiest job in the world. I don't because I have to pastor you guys. (laughs) And I have to pastor me. You know, people have problems. People have issues. And we just see this here. I want to observe a couple of things. The first is just to point out the Bible's realism. You know, a lot of people who haven't read the Bible and read it carefully, like to say the Bible is idealized and unrealistic, kind of a fantasy, but that is just not true. The Bible is always honest about God's followers, sometimes brutally. And there is no idealized relationships here. I mean, we just see really an example of what we like to say around Southwinds all the time, no perfect people allowed. And this is, this is why we all need God's grace. This is why we all need to give each other God's grace. This is why if you have a problem in a church and you decide, I'm just going to leave and go somewhere else, that's usually a very bad idea. Because when you go somewhere else, you always do one thing. You always take you with you. <laughs> and when you get there, there will be problems there as well. See, the Bible is so realistic, and, and we can just have encouragement that God is still at work even when we get in conflict, even when, even when we fail. I want to point out something about what Luke writes here. Maybe you kind of notice this. Uh, Luke doesn't really give any signal as to who is right in this conflict. It's possible that Paul or Barnabas had more of God's heart in mind here, but we're just not told. And I think the reason is that this is likely not a a right-wrong decision here. This is a judgment call. This is about wisdom. I mean, is it wise to bring this kid with us on this trip or not? Do we give him a second chance? Does he need to wait longer? Sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what we're to do. Sometimes we simply have to apply wisdom. And then second observation we see here is, is God's sovereignty over our conflicts. See, God is always at work even in the midst of human failure, even in the midst of human weakness, even in the midst of human sin. See, God in his providence, he's so sovereign, so powerful, he can use even conflict and division 
to advance the gospel. Now, I'm not saying those are good things. I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing that Paul and Barnabas separate, but we can say what happens. And now we have two missionary teams. Two missionary teams result. God is multiplying his kingdom even when his followers fail. You also should understand that this conflict here doesn't mean that that Paul and Barnabas never speak again. In fact, you can go over to 1 Corinthians 9 and you'll see that Paul calls Barnabas a partner in the gospel. I think what happened as they disagreed is that they just realized that the gospel's advance was more important than their opinions, and so they made a decision so that they could both keep going, carrying the gospel, being sent, doing God's work. It's also interesting to notice how the story plays out as you read through the rest of the New Testament. See, we we come to know as we read the rest of the New Testament that Mark is going to become to Peter as Timothy was to Paul. Uh, He's going to become a major player in Peter's ministry. And at the end of 1 Peter, if you read that, you'll see that Peter calls Mark my son, just like Paul refers to Timothy as son in the faith. So, So we know that Peter needed him. We also notice that Paul is going to change his mind about Mark. He speaks positively about Mark in Colossians 4.10 and Philemon 24. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, his final letter, he's getting close to his death. Paul says that he wants Mark to come and be with him. He says he wants this because Mark is useful to me. And so, uh, you know, Paul sees his change in his life. He becomes a vital uh, servant for the Lord. Now, just think about this. Think about the ramifications of this. What if they had just kicked John Mark to the curb? What if they had said, we're writing you off. You're too undependable. We might not have the gospel that bears his name, the gospel of Mark. Mark a.k.a. John Mark, a.k.a. the one who abandoned them on their first journey. You see, even when we fail, God still works to change lives. Isn't that amazing? Here's the second thing I want you to see. God changes lives best through teams. Now, I want to show you a map of how uh, Paul's second missionary journey begins. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember we showed a similar map to this, and you you see some of the cities that we we showed on that map earlier. Well, what they're doing right now is just retracing their steps on that first missionary journey. So just keep that in mind. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 16 says, He came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. In these verses, we we see this team coming together. Uh, Paul and Silas, they head out on this second missionary journey, and and on their first stops, they get to Lystra, and they want to add another person to the team. They want to add Timothy. Paul had probably led Timothy to faith when he had been in Lystra about five years earlier. This may be why Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. Now, we know from these verses that 
that Timothy's mother also had trusted Christ on that first trip of Paul's. We know uh, from other places that uh, she had been training Timothy in the Old Testament scriptures all of his life. But Luke points something out. His father was a Greek, and the way he phrases it, it suggests that Timothy's father was not a believer. Timothy uh, shows this real spiritual maturity, uh, so much so that the believers in two different cities, 20 miles apart, were speaking well of him. This great reputation. Paul says, I want you on my team. I want to pause here and just point out that one of the lessons we need to draw is, is one we talk about quite a lot around Southwinds. It's we're not meant to live the Christian life or do the Christian mission alone. God doesn't want us to do that. When Paul loses Barnabas, he finds another partner in Silas. Paul and Silas go out, and they soon add Timothy. And we don't know necessarily the specifics, but each man would have brought different gifts, different strengths to this team. Each man would have supported and encouraged each other along the way. They were better together. This is why we're constantly encouraging you, exhorting you, get in a small group. You need to be in a group with other people. It's why you can sign up for a group, you know, a group if you're not in one when you leave today. It's why our women's ministry is having a connect event here on the campus, six o'clock this evening for women. If you're not in a group and you don't know how to get connected, we need to serve with other people. We need to be in fellowship with other people. Now, Paul wants Timothy on his team. But in order for that to happen, uh, something unusual needs to take place. It's in verse 3. Did you notice that? It says that Paul circumcised Timothy. Now, that may confuse some of us after last week's study of Acts 15. Maybe some of you are wondering, what's going on here? I'm thinking this had to be one of the strangest conversations in all the history of mentoring. Hey, Timothy, I want you to go with me. Everybody says you're great. Okay, what's it like, Paul? Well, they throw rocks. You better bring a helmet. <laughs> and oh, by the way, Timothy, I'm going to need to circumcise you. Uh, Paul, I think I'll stay in Lystra. <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a full-grown man. So what's up with this? I mean, we saw last week Paul argued strenuously that you, do not, you don't have to be circumcised. In, order, in other words, you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. Did Paul change his mind? Is Paul being inconsistent here? The answer is no, and it's actually pretty straightforward. This is not for salvation. It's for mission. Not for salvation. It's for mission. Look again at verse 3, and notice that word because. Because. Paul circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So rabbinic law taught that if your mother was Jewish, then you were Jewish even if you had a Greek father. But evidently, all of the Jewish people knew that Timothy was uncircumcised. I was thinking about that this week, and I just kind of wondered why or how. Why would you know that? But evidently, everybody knows. Some things the Bible doesn't explain to us. <laughs> and so it was a problem. And just think about what Paul's strategy is. In every city, where does he go first? Well, he goes to the synagogues, and he knew that Timothy would constantly be offending the Jewish people if he didn't get circumcised. So this is a, a matter of missionary strategy, a matter of respect to Jewish uh, scruples. 
Um, it's an attempt to maintain Jewish-Gentile unity in the church. Timothy needs to undergo this painful surgery. Now he can go into the synagogue. Now he can preach the gospel there. Now what this tells us today is just an example of what Paul talks about in Corinthians when he says we need to become all things to all people so that by all means we might win some. You know, if you go to a Jewish setting today to share the gospel, they may want you to put a hat on inside because that's how, how they approach things. If, you, if you're working with a Muslim and they sit on the floor, like you sit on the floor, you just don't allow cultural differences that are spiritually neutral to become unnecessary barriers to the gospel. It's not for salvation, it's for mission. A little closer to home, this also means that we need to be thinking about the people outside of our church family in terms of like this. We don't need to think of them having to adjust to us. We should always be thinking about us adjusting to them, us, us reaching them, connecting with them where they are, not making them think like us and come to us. And we do this for the sake of the gospel. Now Luke says they continue going to the churches. They're delivering this decision of the Jerusalem council. And Verse 5 tells us the churches are getting stronger. They're, they're growing larger. In other words, God is changing lives. And he's about to add another guy to the team. Look at verses 6 through 10. Paul and his companions uh, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now in these verses, we're also going to learn about how God guides teams of Christ followers to do his work of changing lives. And some of you right now are saying, well, wait, Mike, who's the guy they add to the team? Well, I'm going to get to that in a minute, so hold that one. I want you to see, they hit the trail, verse 6. First time they hear from God, God tells them what not to do, where not to go. They keep walking. In verse 7, they get another update from God, and they get another place where they're being told not to go. Isn't that strange? Isn't that unusual? I want you to look at this map again, and I want you to see what's kind of going on. Starting in Pisidian Antioch, they begin journeying. And uh, by the time they actually get this second update from God, they have already walked hundreds of miles. They have no idea where they're going, no idea how long it's going to take to get there. I want you to try to imagine how hard that would be, how much frustration that would create in your mind. It's kind of like God is messing with them. So they, they start from Pisidian Antioch, and it's time to take the gospel to new places. And they've come from the east, and the next logical place would seem to be go west, go further into the province of Asia, into modern-day Turkey. But the Holy Spirit says no. I mean, do you read verse 6 and think that doesn't even compute? Kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word? When does the Holy Spirit tell you not to preach the word. I mean, just take that in. I mean, how did it happen? We don't know. Was it a prophetic revelation? Was it an impression in the heart, like bureaucratic red tape, paperwork that wouldn't go through? We just don't know. All we know is the Spirit made it clear, not Asia. And so they're thinking not west, 
The gospel has already been east. If we go due south, we run into the, the water. So they start heading north. Maybe that's where God wants them to go. And again, I want to encourage you, don't tame the text. Don't just blow over this. Enter into what's going on and what this feels like for this team. I mean, you're Paul. I mean, all you want to do, all you want to do is just make the name of Jesus known. All you want to do is take the gospel to new places. You want to share the love of Jesus with the nations. And you're barred from heading west, so you head north. And you walk north for weeks, miles and miles and miles. And every day you're walking north. All those people to your left on the west, they have never heard the gospel. There's hundreds of thousands of people. But you keep walking at some point, you realize you're getting closer to Bithynia, and maybe you start getting excited. Maybe you start thinking, this must be where God is, is leading us. Maybe you start thinking, finally, we get to do what God has called us to do. We get to share the gospel. But then in verse 7, we see those words, the spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them. He says, no. I mean, where are you going to go now? Can't go north, can't go west. The gospel's already been east. What are we going to do? Well, it's almost comical if you, if you look at the map and you understand the, the different regions that are there. They head in a westerly direction, and they, they walk along a line that's kind of right between the border of uh, Bithynia and Asia and Mycenae. And they're sort of like balancing on this balance beam, and they just keep walking, and they keep walking, and they go all the way until they hit a dead end and can't walk any farther because they've run into the Aegean Sea. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever found yourself thinking, God, I'm just out here trying to obey. I'm, I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm just trying to do the right thing. I want to glorify your name, make Jesus known. And yet, I just keep running into these obstacles. And God, I'm so confused. It, it, it sort of feels like you're the one who's throwing the obstacles up. But it's finally there in Troas, which is actually near the site of the ancient city of Troy, on the coast, on the beach of the Aegean Sea, God comes with revelation. After hundreds of miles of obedience, God opens his mouth and speaks, and this time he gives a vision. It's a vision of a, of a man in Macedonia who is calling and beckoning, who's begging, come here, come here, this is your next step. It's been known ever since as the Macedonian call, and the team doesn't recognize it yet, but God is directing them to plant the gospel on a new continent, continent of Europe. It's just another step, a huge step in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, God changing lives. And it shows us we move, but God gets to steer. We plan, but God gets to direct our plans, and God can change our plans, and God can stop our plans. God can do whatever he wants to do. Amen? Uh, you are, some of you still remembering, what about the fourth guy? You said there was a fourth guy in the team. I don't see anybody named here. Well, let me tell you right now, if you haven't figured it out yet, his name is Luke. His name is Luke, the author of Acts. You say, well, I'm, Luke's name's not in these verses. Well, if you read verses 6 through 10 and pay attention to the pronouns, what you will see is in verses 6 through 9, the pronouns are all third person. They, they, they. And then in verse 10, all of a sudden, we get a we. And scholars believe that Luke shows up somewhere around this time and joins the team. He's going to be with him for some time uh, in the book of Acts. Now, just think about all this. If God can take some of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known and have them spend months backpacking, hiking around western Turkey, 
can we maybe learn something about how God works and about how we need to submit to God's will and how we shouldn't make it about our plans? We need to be led by his spirit and not by our assumptions. Just to kind of flesh this out a little bit more, I want to point out to you some ways that God guides us that come from this text. And many of us have experienced things like this. Notice in these verses that we see God guiding through closed and open doors. Sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says no. Has anybody ever had that happen to them? Has God ever said yes to you? Raise his hand right here. Go ahead. Has God ever said no to you? Raise that hand, the other hand. Um, Raise both your hands right now. There's no reason for that. I just wanted to see you do it. Um, God just deals with us like that sometimes, right? Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. Sometimes the door's closed. Sometimes the door opens. We don't always know because God is God and we're not. We also see God guiding through circumstances and careful thinking. Uh, we, we pay attention to circumstances, but circumstances aren't infallible. We, we also need to think those circumstances through. And in verse 10, uh, there's this word concluding. And this Greek word has the idea of putting the pieces of a puzzle together. So they, they gather the information and they, they think about what they're seeing and then they draw conclusions. And then the third thing, God also guides personally and interpersonally. So we typically think of God leading us individually, um, like internally as we pray. But this reminds us God wants us also at the same time to be talking with other believers and, and listening to their wisdom as well. It's a both and. And then finally, we see that God guides sometimes gradually and unpredictably. And when you look at this whole chapter, you just understand that they didn't begin their trip knowing exactly what God was wanting to do. They were just being obedient. They were just going to revisit the churches. There's nothing dramatic about that decision. They just started on their way doing what God had told them to do. And as they walked, as they went into their trip further, God guided them along the way, often in surprising ways. Now, I'm going to go back to the map for a minute. And I want you to see something I don't know if anybody thought about this or not, but did anybody wonder, well, what happens to Asia? What happens to Bithynia? And you'll notice where they are on the map. If we keep reading in the Bible, we see that God opens the door to Asia on Paul's third missionary journey. Paul goes and he plants the gospel in the city of Ephesus, this enormous city, capital city, very significant place. But then we might wonder, what about Bithynia? What about Pontus? You know, you could go to your Bible map section. You could look at all of Paul's journeys, and you're never going to see Paul going there. What, did God forget about them? But if we read the whole New Testament, and we get ourselves down a ways to the very first verse of 1 Peter, we get a clue that God was up to something else. Here's what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God knows what he's doing. God knows how to get the runners around the bases. God has a plan, and he was, for whatever his reasons were, we don't know, he was moving Peter to that region. He got the gospel there. He was changing lives even there. Third way God changes lives. Write this one down. 
God changes lives by sovereignly opening hearts to the gospel. Look at verses 11 and 12. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Now, again, I want to show you the next version of our map we've got up here so you see the rest of the trip we're covering today. They get in a boat. They sail pretty short journey uh, over the Aegean Sea. They have an overnight stop on the island of Samothrace. They get up the next morning, sail again, this time to Neapolis, which is the port city for Philippi. And then it's just a short, like, 8 to 10-mile hike into Philippi. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a very important city, leading city of that district of Macedonia. Uh, Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great, he had named this city after himself. The Romans had conquered it in 168 B.C., and then they, they granted it the status of a colony in 31 B.C. Uh, maybe you could think of it sort of like San Diego. It's a military town. There's lots of military personnel there. There's lots of military veterans that have re- retired and settled there. And as a result, it is a very Roman city. We see that reflected in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And people would often call Philippi a little Rome. Now, we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, Paul and his team, they were there for probably several weeks. And while they were there, a number of people came to faith in Christ. But what Luke does for us is he kind of lifts up, singles out three of these people to tell their stories. And he's got some things he wants us to see. Let's look at uh, the first story, verses 13 to 15. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of them listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So evidently, uh, there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. And so Paul and his team do what they would naturally do, knowing Jewish culture. They knew if there wasn't a synagogue, that it was traditional for the Jewish people to gather by a body of water to have a kind of an informal place of prayer. And so they go to the river looking for that. And when they get there, they meet some women who are gathered. One of them is named Lydia. And Luke tells us that she was from the city of Thyatira, which is in the province of Asia. He tells us she was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us, but, but uh, Thyatira was famous for its purple dye. And in this time, it was a very expensive and therefore a very profitable commodity. And she had, she had gotten that market together and she had sold her product and she had made a lot of money. We are meant to understand that Lydia was a wealthy entrepreneur. Uh, we're told here that she owned a home and this likely would have been her second home. She had one in Thyatira, another sign of her wealth. But despite all of her success, she was still searching for more. Luke says also that she was a worshiper of God. This is the term that's used for the God-fears, like Cornelius, as we saw a few chapters ago. Uh, We are meant to see here that uh, the gospel reaches the spiritually interested. There are people 
who have a spiritual yearning in their heart. They're interested in spiritual things. And, and you may be like this as you're here today. You may have someone in your life who is like this. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for them. Lydia listens to Paul teach the Bible, explain the gospel. And Luke tells us at some point the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. What does this mean? It just means that the God of all grace opened her spiritual life so that she could embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. God worked in her heart and he gave her new life as she heard the gospel. I also want you to be clear on how this happened. God uses the teaching of his word to open hearts. Paul was basically doing evangelistic Bible study. He was sharing the gospel from the teaching of the scriptures. And Lydia responds. There's also members of her household who respond. They get baptized. She invites the team uh, to stay at her home. She's using her gifts, uh, her, her resources. She's being hospitable. I just want you to notice as, as you read these verses that Lydia's conversion is very quiet. It's almost tender. There's not a lot of drama and noise going on here. It's almost like a flower blooming. God floods his grace into her heart and it opens up. She becomes his child. Her sins are forgiven. And I know there are a number of you, you were saved just like this. And it may be, it may be. And I've been praying this week that it would be. It may be that God is saving one of you right now. That God is opening your heart right now. And if you sense God drawing you to him, if you feel pulled in his direction, if you sense that longing in your heart, I want to tell you right now, you can turn to him in repentance. Right now, you can ask him to forgive your sins. Right now, you can trust him for salvation. And right now, if you do that, you can believe and know that he's going to open your heart and he's going to receive you into his family and make you his child. That can happen right now. God is changing lives. He's always at work. Let me show you the fourth way God changes lives. It's in these next three verses. And this next story is very different. Uh, Write this down. God changes lives of people in bondage. Now listen to verses 16 through 18. Luke writes, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And if you hear a little note of irritation in my voice, I think that's really how he said it. I'll explain why. At that moment, the spirit left her. Now, I want you to see this girl is the opposite of Lydia. Scholars say she's probably in her mid-teens. She's a slave. She has a demon. 
This means she's in spiritual and economic bondage. This means she is a broken person. She has been used and abused by other people. The Greek literally said that she has a python spirit. And this was a common expression. The python was related to the worship of Apollo. And someone like her would have been referred to as a pythoness in that culture. This was a person who made clairvoyant predictions. This was a person who would speak in, in different voices, all kinds of strange voices. If you want to put the exorcist in here, that probably is somewhat appropriate. And because she could predict the future, people, lots of people, wanted to hear what she had to say. And therefore, she made her owners lots of money. In other words, put it all together, she really wasn't on her way to the prayer meeting. This is not that kind of person. And Luke says that she's following Paul and the team around, and, and she's shouting out, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And Luke says she kept this up for many days. I think it's interesting. She's the kind of person who's both attracted to Christianity and simultaneously antagonistic toward it. And there are a lot of people in captivity who are like that. There's just something about the message that draws them. But they, but they have all this anger and all this distrust, and it's just kind of seething within them. Verse 18 is one of those verses that makes me know the Bible isn't made up. Because it doesn't say, finally, Paul, full of great compassion. Or finally, Paul, tenderly, tearfully stroking your hair, saying, oh, daughter of Eve, God loves you so very much. He doesn't say that. Uh, Luke writes, more literally, Paul was greatly annoyed. Paul was peeved. Anybody know what peeved means? Anybody sitting next to a person who lives perpetually in the state of peeved? Yeah, some of you know exactly what we're talking about here. That's Paul. This is why he cast the evil spirit out of this girl. It was bugging the heck out of him. So how does she get saved? Well, it's very different than Lydia. Paul performs an act of deliverance. In power, by the Spirit of God, he throws the demon out. And therefore, he takes away all the revenue she was making for her masters. Now, this is showing us how the gospel reaches the spiritually and physically captive some of you might have read the words that she said and thought, oh, I don't know why Paul's so irritated. She's speaking the truth. And yes, that is true. But here's the deal. Sometimes you don't want the advertisement you get from certain people. And what's going on here is Satan is trying to derail the team's work in Philippi by associating the gospel with the occult, with the demonic. And Paul says, no, this is not going to happen. He frees her with a word in Jesus' name. And in a moment, Jesus in power casts the demon out of this girl because Jesus crushes serpents. Write this down. God displays his power over all sin and evil. Even the sin and the evil that may seem to have power over your life right now, the power you can't get away from, the power you can't escape, the chains you cannot seem to break. He can set you free. Now, I want you to see as we're doing this how Luke is contrasting these two conversions. Lydia is wealthy. The slave girl is poor. Lydia would have been on the cover of Forbes. Slave girl exploited, abused, trafficked. Lydia is religious and moral. The slave girl is broken and tormented. 
Lydia comes to faith through a quiet Bible study. The slave girl gets transformed through a dramatic power encounter. Lydia was presented with Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, hope of the world. The slave girl, she meets Jesus. As mighty deliverer. Mighty deliverer. See, two different women. Both brought to faith in Jesus. And it is a reminder to us that the gospel can transform any person, no matter what, no matter their history, no matter what they've done. The power that casts the evil spirit out of this girl, same power, same power that opened Lydia's heart. It's the power of Jesus. I just want to say to you today, if you find yourself here chained by forces you cannot control, Jesus is really good at breaking chains. Jesus can set you free. Here's the last thing. God changes lives, and this will surprise you, through his followers' sufferings. Sometimes, and we don't like this one, but sometimes for the gospel to advance, God's sent people will need to suffer. And no one says amen. We don't like it, but it's true. Look at verse 19, and we'll read as we work our way through this last part of the chapter. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now think about it. All Paul and Silas are doing is trying to serve Jesus and help people. But setting captives free sometimes upsets the economy. And people who idolize money, often react violently. Still true today. This is likely the first of three times that Paul is going to get beaten by rods. They take him to the jail. The jailer puts them in the inner cell. It's what we would call the dungeon. And again, you need to understand there were no prisoner rights back then. The dungeon, among other places, would have been the place because it was lower, where all the sewage would drain. I mean, it was just nasty. I don't need to describe it any farther. He then goes on and he puts their feet in the stocks. And this is not to keep them from escaping. It is just to intensify their pain. So what do you do when you've been beaten to a pulp, when your back is lacerated and sticky with blood? What do you do when your feet are attached to a wall and you can't move and you're just in agony because your entire beaten, bloody body is cramping. Well, here's what Paul and Silas do, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? My most of us, we would be upset. We would be mad at God. We would be throwing a pity party. But here are these two men beaten to the point of death. And they lift their voices to God in praise. And God shakes the earth. Luke says the other prisoners were listening to them. I think they were saying to themselves, whatever they got, I want. 
You know, people pay attention when you glorify God in pain. You know, when your life is good and you give God thanks, nobody really cares a whole lot about that. But when you show that God is your treasure, even in pain, and it's not about what God may give you, people sit up and pay attention. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the temple were, or the prison were shaken. All at once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Paul saves his life. Now we're Meeting here, the third person Luke wants to tell us about, the Philippian jailer. Who's he? Well, jailers would have usually been highly decorated Roman soldiers who as a kind of retirement gift were given a jail to run. It's how they made their living. He would have been an older man probably, and he would have been a hardened man in all likelihood. He would have been a cynic and a skeptic because of all the things that he had seen in his life. But this man is about to get saved because of two things. He observed Paul and Silas and their incredible joy in the midst of pain first. And then second, he was the recipient of their extravagant grace. See, Paul, Paul recognized what was going on. He recognized that God had appointed their suffering to reach this jailer. That's why he didn't run when the chains fall off. He doesn't run. He doesn't escape. He, he instead chooses to do two things in the midst of it all. He keeps giving praise to God, and he keeps showing extravagant grace to other people. I just want to ask us, Southwinds, what if, what if in the midst of pain, our first thought was not, God, what have I done wrong? What if it was, God, whose life are you trying to use me in, in my pain? I mean, here's a wild thought. Maybe sometimes we should quit asking God to take away this week what we asked him in prayer for last week. I mean, we pray, God, use me. And so God says, all right, I'll use you. And then we say, God, you must hate me. And God says, no, I'm just answering your prayer. <laughs> just answering your prayer because sometimes to change lives, God's people need to suffer. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? We follow God's Son, Jesus the Christ, who suffered more than anyone will ever suffer. Why should we be surprised that sometimes we need to suffer so that people can meet our Lord and our Savior? See, Paul and Silas don't run, they don't escape. Even though they're innocent, they've been in prison justly because they see God can use their suffering for the gospel. They, they can see that this is part of God's plan to reach Philippi. And Paul's thinking, that's what I've been praying for. I've been praying that God would open doors for me to reach Philippi. And he sees God put me in this prison so I can suffer well before this Philippian jailer. And then I can tell him about the reason that I am so full of joy, even in my pain. And if that's what it takes, Paul says, I'm willing to pay that price. So he just stays there. He stands there with his freedom on his right hand and on his left, this cruel man who had tortured him the night before. I mean, you can see why this is so moving to the jailer. Look at verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. 
You know what? That's the best question any of us could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? Have you asked that question? The answer to that question is very straightforward. What must I do to be saved? Well, you don't have to do anything because Jesus has already paid it all. Jesus has already done everything. Jesus has lived the life we couldn't live, and he has died the death that we should have died, and he has risen victoriously over all our enemies. He has now ascended to the throne of the Father where he reigns over all, and one day, one day, he's going to come back, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. So you should believe on him. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. Believe on him. Verse 33 says, At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. I'm going to point out two things very quickly here. We see that the gospel reaches the hardened. That's what this story is about. No one is too far. It's not too late for anyone. If you only believe, you can be saved. And then we also see here that God uses our joy to spread his life. The jailer was captivated. He was drawn in by joy. And so was his entire family. The whole family becomes believers. They're all baptized. And it's just this beautiful picture of what the gospel does. The jailer washes their wounds. Did you see that? And then he feeds them a meal. It's just wonderful expressions of grace. So you put all this together, we have three stories. Lydia, the religious lady, the wealthy lady, slave girl, poor, in bondage, tormented. She's now free. Her dignity is restored. You have this jailer. He's hardened, doesn't give a rip about Jesus, doesn't know anything about spiritual things. Now he is on the team. Verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. What's up here? What's going on? Why is Paul doing this? Is he just trying to humiliate the officials? The answer is very simple. No, he's not. This is very important for Paul, and if you read Acts carefully, you will see it's also very important for Luke. All through Acts, Luke is trying to signal to his readers that Christianity is not violating the laws of Rome. And Paul is about to leave town. And Paul wants to make sure when he leaves that this church is protected and that this church won't be harassed in the future. He wants to protect the reputation of this church. And those officials coming and escorting him out will go a long way toward making some things clear. Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. And then they left. Now, I love verse 40. They went to Lydia's house. This is evidently the place where the church is now gathering, this entire congregation of new believers. God has planted the gospel 
on the continent of Europe. God has planted his church there in the city of Philippi. God is at work changing lives. Amen? Amen. And again, we see these three stories of people who got saved. Why? Well, we're just meant to understand something about the gospel from these stories, and it's simply this. The gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. All different kinds of people need to meet Jesus. And that's what the church is. Very different people. I've said this before. You know, you look around here and you think to yourself, I would never hang around some of these people outside the church. Amen? That's okay to say that. But we have something bigger and better than those other things in our culture that draws us together. We have the gospel, and it draws us together. Second thing these stories remind us is that all these different people around us need to be reached, and it's going to take different ways to reach them. Are we finding, discovering those ways? Are you going out being sent? Southwinds, we are sent. And so let's reach Tracy, Mountain House, Lathrop, all across the West San Joaquin Valley with the good news of Jesus. It is our job to speak. It is God's job to open hearts. And he's always faithful. May we be faithful as well. Let's bow our heads as we pray together. Father God, we confess today that you are good and that your plans are always good and just, even when we don't understand And we rejoice today that you are always at work changing lives through your gospel. Lord, for those of us who already know you, may we be faithful to share the gospel as you open doors. And Lord, for those of us who may not know you, may you open our hearts even now, even today, and may men and women across this room repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus the Christ, the one who has loved us, who gave his life on the cross so that we might be saved. We pray these things now in his name, the precious name, the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people together say,